weight is really just one of 40 factors that affect sports performance. There's lots of things that affect sports performance, sleep, mental toughness, you know, endurance, flexibility, someone following recovery protocols, somebody eating well, they hydrating. I mean, there's just so many things that can affect how somebody's doing besides just weight. Hey everyone, and welcome to Sports Arty Snippets. I'm Liz Waluka, a registered dietitian and board certified specialist in sports dietetics. Every Wednesday, I'll be bringing you a sports dietitian guest that will share advice, insight, and rewards of the profession. Snippets of their own career path to becoming a sports RD. Hey everyone, welcome back to Sports Arty Snippets. I'm super excited for the episode for today. I'm trying to think of any updates. I mean, I forget you guys don't know this because I haven't really said anything yet, but there are only going to be two more episodes left in fall of 2021. This episode today, and then I have a surprise panel episode um, coming out November 3rd, and then I'm going to take a break for a bit, but I just wanted to give everyone a heads up just so you, you know you're good with it too. But yeah, I don't know. It kind of feels like a chapter is coming to an end. Not that I'm going to stop doing this. I don't know. I guess season three is over and I'm excited. I don't know when I'll come back. I'm assuming January. I just don't want to make any promises, but this has been fun. And I'm glad that the summer series turned into the fall series and I'm going to take a break. But before that, we are jumping into an episode about eating disorders in sport. And we have Wendy Sterling on and she really just has such great advice for anyone working with eating disorders in sport. And especially if you're a new dietitian or early dietitian working with eating disorders for the first time, you'll definitely take a lot of the messages that Wendy has and hopefully they'll make you feel a lot better and use them in your practice. Uh, Wendy shares her plate-by-plate approach, the biggest mistakes dietitians make when working with eating disorders and the value of networking. Wendy Serling is a certified eating disorder registered dietitian and approved supervisor through the International Eating Association of Eating Disorder Professionals and a board certified specialist in sports dietetics in the Bay Area in California. She has consulted with the Oakland Athletics, Golden State Warriors, New York Jets, and New York Islanders. She is a co-author of How to Nourish Your Child Through an Eating Disorder, No Way, A Teen's Guide to Body Image, Food and Emotional Wisdom in Forthcoming, Raising Body Positive Teens, A Parent's Guide to Diet-Free Living, Exercise, and Body Image. She maintains a private practice and is now seeing patients virtually. For more on her practice, check out her website at www.sterlingnutrition.com. Follow her on Instagram at Wendy Sterling and Plate by Plate Approach or on Twitter at Wendy MSRD. Let's jump in and let's meet Wendy. Hi, Wendy. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm such a fan of these snippets. So it's an honor to be here with you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, No, I'm so excited to interview you. You've been on the list for a while now. Um, But yeah, I'm so excited to just kind of hear about your career path. And what, what are you up to right now? Like set the scene for us. What's going on in your world? Um, I am well, today, I spent the day seeing patients privately in my home office. I actually have real offices. <laughs> That's not in my home. Um, but uh, in COVID, I've been seeing patients almost entirely via telehealth. So 
today I'm at the end of a long day. Um, and yeah, uh, I'm so excited to be chatting with you at the end of this day. Awesome. Well, I like to start these episodes off with how we know each other. Wendy, I don't know if you know this, but do you know I met you at McCallum? Or- of course I remember that. Yeah. yeah, I feel like I met you in the bathroom. Did, did I see you in the bathroom? Yes, I did. Oh, okay. God. I don't know where I should start with this story so it makes sense to everyone. I'm kind of a rambler. Okay, so I was, so I found out about McCallum because my head team physician at UConn was presenting that year at McCallum. Yes, I remember that. She presented a kick butt case study. I remember that. Yes, yeah. So like, obviously I was like a new dietitian. That was my first year at UConn. Never heard of McCallum until she was presenting and they were like, Liz, you should go. And so that whole first year, like first time really ever working with eating disorders, like in SNP, I like shadowed, but you couldn't really do the work until you're kind of like full time. And so that was my first year. And I remember like, I mean, anyone in their first year working with eating disorders, it's just, it's crazy. You know, it's scary. You don't know what you're doing. It's intimidating. And I got through the first year and I obviously went to McCallum. I knew, so for anyone who doesn't know, McCallum is basically a conference about like eating disorders and sport. And what I love about McCallum is that it's not just for the RD. It's for like the athletic trainer, the um, team physician. It's like a conference for everyone. And it's also a tr- eating disorder residential treatment facility right. um, in St. Louis. And then they put on this conference every year. Um, in ver- it, it, I mean, it used to be in St. Louis, but then they started doing this conference in various parts of the country, I guess, to just sort of network with other people in, in different areas. Yeah. Okay. So go ahead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, and I feel so lucky I've been twice because, COVID, you know, like I went two years in a row. Anyways, amazing conference. If you can go, go. And so I'm like sitting there and Wendy's about to present. I don't know Wendy. And, you know, I'm coming off this year where I don't know any different, but like, I don't feel confident with working with eating disorders because you're still new at it. And Wendy presented her, it's plate to plate, right? Or plate by plate. Yeah. Plate by plate approach. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was one of the keynote speakers. It was a really a dream uh, to present at a sports eating disorder conference for me, at least. I was such, it was such an honor. Um, and I was really excited to be there to do that. And that presentation, your model just, I don't know, it was just like my eyes just like fell out of my sockets. And I was like, this is it. Like, you know, and I know what's meant for like children, right? It's not like the collegiate athlete plate or, you know, that type of approach, but it's still the concept still you can, you know, utilize it. And after you spoke, I saw you in the bathroom and I've like never seen a celebrity. I'm laughing. I'm calling you a celebrity, but I like, I've never seen like a celebrity before because it was so funny. Like I must've just been waiting in line in the bathroom. And then you came out. I was like, Oh my God, like I love your work or like something like that. And that's like, (laughs) I would have been so shy. Like, I don't think I would have naturally done that, but I was just so like, you really like were such a trajectory like of that for me, because I mean, now I'm on year five as a dietitian, and I just remember that was just like, you know, we'll get into it about like how to work with eating disorders in sport, but it's scary. And I just felt like your approach just made it less scary. So thank you. I'm so glad to hear that. And I, I remember, I remember that. And I just remember coming out of that presentation. Maybe I went out of that presentation and, and I guess apparently to the bathroom, <laughs> which is not surprising for me. Um, and I just remember seeing a friendly face who liked what I said. And I was so happy <laughs> to hear some positive feedback. So thank you for that. <laughs> and then thank you for having me on your podcast. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So let's jump in. Can you take us through your career path up until this point where you started and where you are today? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. Um, and I'm sorry if I will be rambling. I apologize in advance. So um, I picked nutrition out of a book. Um, 
I know that sounds crazy, but um, I, my sister was attending Cornell University and I took the big red book and I, she was a psych major and on purpose, I was not going to be a psych major because she was a psych major. So I uh, literally found nutrition in the big red book and I was like, this is perfect. I was really um, seriously into sciences at the time um, and probably, I guess, still. And I didn't want to give up sciences to do psych. And I thought, wow, nutrition is the perfect blend of psychology, working with people, and I get to keep my science background. Um, I applied early to Cornell. I ended up getting into Cornell and I was nutrition ever since. I never had a career change. I've been doing nutrition and dietetics literally since my undergraduate. I graduated in 1999. So it's been a long road. Um, after college, I went and did my master's in dietetic internship at Teachers College, Columbia University. Um, my master's is in nutrition education. Um, and I picked that specifically because I figured no matter what I did, I always wanted to be working to educate people. I didn't exactly know which people <laughs> I would be educating, but I figured I wanted to learn the best ways to motivate, excite, teach, um, whoever it was that I would be working with. So um, after I did that, my very first job out of my programs um, was in adolescent medicine at a large multidisciplinary eating disorder center in New York, working with patients uh, who had eating disorders. And um, truly my first job I was looking for mainly for it to be working in an outpatient setting. And it could have, I could have landed easily in diabetes or something with renal or something with, I mean, I don't know, it could have been anything, but it was, it ended up being that. Um, and while I was there, many of those patients, as you could imagine, were athletes. I had lots and lots of runners and gymnasts and soccer players and swimmers and cross country uh, stars and figure skaters. Um, it really was the ideal job. I was there at that hospital for 10 years. And I will say it was really the foundation that set up my whole career um, and has affected pretty much everything I have done since. While I was there, I was running a partial hospitalization program for patients with eating disorders. Um, there was also an inpatient unit there. I interacted with those patients, but I wasn't managing those patients day to day. Um, we, were, we did a lot of research um, on things like osteoporosis in teens with anorexia or amenorrhea, metabolism. I was doing indirect calorimetry carts, uh, metabolic carts on our patients twice a week, every week, um, which was, I had no clue what I was doing initially. I like called the company. I spent hours and hours, months, like forever researching what the heck I was doing. Um, and, you know, figured it out and really learned a lot about physiology and metabolism. And um, while I was there, I learned from an amazing large team of doctors, therapists, nurses, psychiatrists, um, social workers. And we used to round on our patients uh, three times a week. It would be once a week for our day hospital patients, once a week for our outpatients, once a week for the inpatients. And I really learned there how to assess somebody um, how to really look at the whole person, how to get input from other providers, troubleshoot issues, work together, and really the value of teamwork um, on really every person that I saw and how much that matters in helping to get somebody better. And, and really to this day, even in my private practice, 
all of my patients that I see, I communicate with a doctor, a psychiatrist, the therapist, uh, the coach, the athletic trainer, whoever is involved. That is literally how my mind thinks. And so it's very uh, upsetting to me if that doesn't, if that team approach is not there. Um, and it's happened a couple of times throughout <laughs> sports where not everybody was team players. Um, as I was doing uh, my work at the hospital, uh, I was asked to consult with Hofstra University, uh, a couple of their sports teams. Um, there were a couple of cases of eating disorders. And so I was asked to come on as an expert to help troubleshoot and, and work with their teams. I did some lectures there. Um, at one point I was doing a runner study with a sports medicine doc, Damian Martins, and he had asked me to send along my resume. And I was convinced at that point, I remember the feeling that I had done something wrong. <laughs> I was like, why does he want to see my resume? Oh, yeah. I was like, clearly I had messed something up. I know it. I was, uh, anyway, it turned out he wanted to send my resume to the New York Jets. Um, I was really happy in adolescent medicine, um, but I, I kind of went to the interview um, and uh, and it turned out I didn't have to give up my job with adolescent medicine. I was able to kind of move my hours around and do both. Um, and, and so that was great. I, I spent seven seasons with the New York Jets and I spent a long time studying football. Um, I was a cheerleader in high school and a, a dancer before that, but I didn't really know much about football. Um, but I would watch every single game with the commentators like on full blast, like very isolated, like no one could talk to me. And I would really like wanted to know the nuances of everything that was going on right on down to kind of contract negotiations. So when I was with a player who was like held at a training camp and he showed up the next morning and I was in the cafeteria with him, like I understood those dynamics. Um, and I did a lot of food service, which <laughs> we were talking about before. Um, and I've heard as a common theme on your podcast before, um, you know, you know, we were in this new, uh, at one point we moved facilities. It was a gorgeous state-of-the-art facility with a beautiful kitchen. And I was tapped to manage the team of chefs and the menus and the quality of the food. And um, many of the students that I see are always like, oh yeah, I want to do sports nutrition, but I hate food service. So I don't want to do that. And it's just like, it's just funny because they go really hand in hand. And so I was doing a lot of that. Um, at the end of my first year, I remember the Jets uh, told me that they wanted to rehire me. And I just was like, huh? Like, what do you mean rehire me? Like I, I had been working in adolescent medicine for six years. Nobody told me at the end of the first year they were gonna rehire me. And it's just like my intro to professional sports that every year <laughs> you have to get officially asked back uh, that every year you might get fired and every year you have to be officially asked to come back. Um, over those years, I had two daughters um, and I was able to kind of finagle my schedule to be part-time at the hospital, uh, still with the Jets. Um, and I was doing some more private practice, which I um, was just doing a lot of consulting. I consulted for the New York Islanders, doing some lectures and working with some players. And then I also was working for a company um, just sort of seasonally called Pro Hoops, which was uh, run by this guy, Jay Hernandez, who is now um, an assistant coach at the Charlotte Hornets. 
um, doing draft prep for basketball players. And that was so much fun. We would create these customized nutritional programs and grocery shopping lists. And I'd work with the grandmas and the parents and the, you know, girlfriends. Um, and that was really fun. Many of those guys got, you know, went on to get drafted pretty high, um, some first round picks. And so that was, um, really a fun time. And then in 2013, we relocated to California for a change in my husband's job. And at that point, my husband looked at me and said, all right, like, do you want to do nutrition still? Do you want to do something else? You know, like the world is yours. Like, what do, what do you want to do? Um, and it was a really interesting question. And I, I really thought about it. And I kind of, you know, I'm in the heart of Silicon Valley. There's a lot of really interesting things going on here. And I think at the end of the day, I was just, this is really, I think, what my passion is and what I think I was put here to do and what I loved. And so I, um, I, I considered it and then I <laughs> moved forward and I ended up um, getting a part-time job at this um, partial hospitalization program called the Healthy Teen Project, uh, where I was just working two days a week to just get acclimated into the eating disorder community. Um, it was for adolescents. And then I started, a, you know, I was doing my private practice and it was at Healthy Teen Project where I met my co-author Casey Crosby and we would go on to write How to Nourish Your Child Through an Eating Disorder, where we discussed what you were talking about earlier, which is the plate-by-plate -plate approach. Um, somewhere around there, I also was writing um, No Way, which is a teen's guide to body image, food, and emotional wisdom. So I was having a lot of fun writing. Um, and when I had first moved to California, I had this interesting connection. The Jets ex, the ex-Jets general manager had become an agent and was representing Steve Kerr when he was um, becoming the coach for the Warriors. And so uh, Mike had connected me uh, to Steve and the Warriors, and I was able to kind of work for the Warriors for a couple of years, um, which was also really fun. Um, and so I was doing that, uh, working at Healthy Team Project, managing my private practice, and kind of doing a couple of those things all at once until I eventually um, was doing not the uh, partial hospitalization program and just kind of entirely in private practice. And then the A's came along in 2016. Um, Nancy Clark actually passed my name along. Nancy is, for those of you who don't know her, is like the sports nutrition guru. Um, interestingly, the strength coach had taken her sports nutrition course. Um, I already knew I must like him uh, by the fact that he was following her work and she had passed my name along to the A's. And um, I had been with the A's, um, you know, for six seasons up until now. So um, that's kind of uh, where I'm at. You're so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for babbling. <laughs> for no, so long. I, mean, I tried I to do it quickly. No, that was great. I think it's just so like, how do you, is it possible for people to really live in like the partial hospitalization world and pro sports? Like, I feel like those two worlds are so different, but were they so fulfilling in a way that it balanced like your lifestyle? Yeah. Like, how do you keep your head in? I don't know. Just so cool. Well, I've always had eating disorders. I've always done eating disorders. I've been in this field for, you know, since 2001. Um, one of the doctors said it to me best, you know, you can't just see patients day after day after day after day. Like it's, it's, there's a high burnout rate um, in this line of work. And so, you know, doing a couple, even in, even when I was full-time at the hospital, the way that my schedule was crafted, I was, 
seeing patients a certain number of times per week. I was doing metabolic parts a couple of times per week. I was at the day hospital a couple of times per week. I was in, in you know, meetings a couple mornings per week. Like my schedule was crafted such that I was not just exclusively seeing patients. And so um, eventually when I was kind of crafting things, it was always great to kind of have my private practice and then go see a sports team. Because if I was just in private practice five days a week, um, it's just, it's really draining work. It's very hard to just see patients or to do one thing. I've never really just done one thing. And I think many of the dietitians that I hear on your podcast or that I know um, just in, you know, from knowing a lot of dietitians do many different things. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you have any tips for like balancing just when you're at the Oakland A's or just with private practice, like living in those two worlds, like any tips for, like, I don't know if dietitians, I don't know, do people think they can have a career where they really do both now, or does it feel like you have to go one way, but how do you kind of balance that? Well, I think I've been really lucky uh, to be able to really look at my schedule and and control things uh, kind of carefully. So uh, if we look at kind of most recently, um, I was seeing patients, you know, three days a week. Um, and then I was going to the A's, um, you know, let's say once a week. Uh, at most uh, once a week, every week, uh, but it was never that much really because sometimes they were on the road. Um, and then I was doing work for them on the days that they were on the road from home. On the days that I had to be there more often, I would try to block out my schedule from seeing patients. Um, and then on the days that I wasn't seeing patients or I wasn't with the A's, I would try to write and do some of my book writing stuff. And so I was really trying never to overextend myself to be working at nights. And I really tried to set a boundary of not working on the weekends. Um, and so even though I was juggling a whole bunch of things, I was trying to fit it into a five-day work week and a nine to five to the best that I could. Now, that is not typical for sports. Um, many people uh, that we hear are doing seven days a week and really long hours, I have chosen to just do things a little bit differently and to try to have more control and ownership over my schedule. Yeah, I love that. That's amazing. Cause you're right. I think it is kind of hard to like, how would you kind of do both? But it sounds like you set boundaries early, would you say? And um, like taking care of yourself and your happiness. And did you ever feel like you wanted to go all in in one area or? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, well, it's funny. I think I'm kind of doing that now. I, I actually just resigned from the Oakland A's, um, last week. Um, I decided to resign. Interestingly, um, I can tell you more about that if you want to hear more about my role or if you want me to get into kind of why I resigned. But, um, basically I think COVID was really weird, uh, for me with the Oakland A's. Um, I, 2020, I was not in the clubhouse, you know, COVID kept me out of the clubhouse. And then 2021, um, I was mostly out of the clubhouse, you know, as well. And um, I think it was very hard working virtually. I was doing a lot of catering and um, it was very hard to just build relationships with players. And uh, really and truly at the same time, there were a lot of exciting things happening for me in my private practice. Um, I was writing a third book and I was speaking, uh, you know, with COVID and uh, the pandemic, I was doing a lot of speaking nationally and internationally and connecting with colleagues in 
Australia and Ireland and lots of telehealth stuff that was kind of happening um, where I was uh, doing a lot of lecturing, which was really cool. And then on the flip side, um, there was this explosion that happened uh, with eating disorders globally that resulted from the pandemic. And I really just felt like, gosh, I'm really, I think I'm needed more yeah. in this space. And adolescent medicine, um, you know, adolescents in general, adolescent nutrition, it really just felt very fragile. And it's an area I've always been really passionate about. And I, I wanted to spend more time developing the things that I was working on in that space. And so um, I just felt like my colleagues and I were putting our heads together and being like, how can we see more patients? Like, can we run more groups or should we create webinars or should I do more professional supervision to get other colleagues up to speed? And so I just felt like with all of those things combined, I decided to step away from my position with the A's and just devote more time to the development of my practice. This episode is sponsored by Momentus. If you're like me, you definitely had athletes who've experienced the annoying gas, bloating, and discomfort that can come after taking some brands of protein powders. As we know, bloating could be a sign that your body isn't processing the powder correctly and you're likely peeing out most of it because your gut can't absorb it. But with our friends at Momentus, that isn't the case. And this is because they've included a special patent enzyme blend in their whey protein that eliminates gas, bloating, and makes your protein more bioavailable. The enzyme blend in Momentus is called Prohydrolase, and it's been tested in research against other enzymes. It has been proven to actually deliver more amino acids in your bloodstream, which means you fully absorb the protein. Don't you want to make sure your athletes are actually getting the protein they're paying for? Momentus definitely does, and your athletes will notice a difference. They won't feel uncomfortable after they take it, and they'll definitely take their recovery to the next level. Go to their website at livemomentous.com and use the code RDSnippets for 20% off your order of $40 or more. That's R-D-S-N-I-P-P-E-T-S. Thank you so much to Momentous for sponsoring this episode. Can you talk about, there's probably a lot of dietitians listening and it doesn't have to be the collegiate setting, but anyone maybe working with an athlete, can you just talk about how the plate by plate approach can be helpful for, you know, any RD trying to work um, with an athlete with disordered eating or an eating disorder? Sure. Yeah, I would love to. So when somebody has an eating disorder, um, how do you go about renourishing them? Um, there are, you know, you, somebody can count calories or use a tracking app, a tracking app, but you know, those things are not recommended. And there have been a lot of studies that have looked at these things, particularly around MyFitnessPal, um, that has shown that these things increase psychological distress or eating disorder uh, symptomatology. Um, there's the exchange system, which is used, it's based on the diabetic exchange system, which is used commonly and interestingly across eating disorder treatment programs across the country. Um, but I have found, many have found that these exchange systems tend to leave these remnants uh, floating around a person's minds when they eventually transition off. So when they look at the plate, they're still seeing the plate as it was laid out for them initially, two breads, three meats, a vegetable, a fat, and in these very discrete units of portions that were outlined as per the exchanges. And plus, exchanges are tricky because um, they become hard to eat in restaurants or eat um, homemade recipes. Parents are often excluded as well from that system. So, you know, what if the plate was just the plate from the beginning to the middle to the end? during recovery. 
Um, the Olympic Committee, interestingly enough, as you know, has this, these visual methods of, you know, that are designed for educating athletes, the easy training, moderate training, and high intensity. That's a better system, but it's not great for eating disorder treatment um, in the sense that on the plate, they have these words that say weight management. Um, that is not ideal language for somebody recovering from an eating disorder who's really trying to not worry about managing weight um, and certainly get away from that uh, as best as they can. It also advocates for lean proteins. And that's something you hear a lot in sports. It's you know language that's used around sports. But with eating disorders, there's a lot of um, time that we spend on exposures to all foods and getting people back to not being fearful. Uh, plus, many may have low testosterone levels or low estrogen levels, and it's important to really make sure that there's adequate fats, and we may need to make special extra efforts to kind of get those fats up. And so then you come along and see a plate that's like lean proteins, and the person may be like, oh, the plate, the plate says lean, <laughs> I'm going to follow that. And then that kind of like can cause some of your work to backfire. Um, the other thing that becomes problematic about those plates is that the easy training plate um, almost never works for my patients in the sense that they, they almost always need to catch up on their rest day. Um, and so like, you know, it, it just ends up being too light. And so, so that wasn't great either. So our plates are um, pretty much mostly the moderate and the hard training plate. And we have customized versions of what that looks like. There's no language on there. It's pretty much a blank slate. And there's a focus really on balance, variety, what looks normal, no numbers, no counting, um, and uh, really just quite simple, meant to be used across all cultures. Uh, somebody's lactose free or vegetarian, vegan, gluten free, all of those work. Um, and the idea is that we use it in eating disorder treatment, but I also find that I use it with athletes also because many don't want to be counting macronutrients or counting um, you know, calories or any of those kinds of things. Um, we do have an Instagram where we show visually what these plates look like um, at plate by plate approach. Um, and you can see that many of these plates are based on the 50% starch plate. Um, and we do try to show different cultural cuisines and, you know, we certainly can't cover all cuisines, but mostly we'll ask our patients, what do you guys eat in your house? And then try to coach them on how to actually fill up the plate. Um, and so, uh, you know, um, yeah, so that, that's basically it in a nutshell, but we do try to um, avoid using calories and numbers. Yeah, no, that's amazing. I feel like, especially starting out as like a new RG working with eating disorders in sport, it's, I feel like it's hard because you hear, oh, like you should use exchanges. And then, so you start doing that, but something feels off because, you know, you're supposed to give them structure, but then you're like, wait, is this too much structure? And then you're like, are you making a diet by giving them a diet without trying to give them a diet? And so it's almost like, would you say your plates are like the exchanges, but in a plate? You're not, it's exactly what it is in the exchanges, but you're not, you're not counting. It's like, if you're, if you need three starches, it likely will take up half the plate or something, you know, along those lines. So it's cool. That's the same concept, but it takes out, you know, it still gives the athlete structure without that pressure, which I think is really important. Totally. And I use, uh, and many of us use um, an app called recovery record. And there are yeah. many visual plating apps, uh, by the way. 
um, where you can actually see a, a visual image of what the person's plate looks like. And so, you know, uh, rather than having them write down, like um, this was interesting too, somebody wrote down the other day, um, crackers and cheese. And then like, I saw visually like what it looked like. And this was a patient of mine who had ARFID, which is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, more of like a pickier type, limited preferences. Um, and it ended up being crackers with like a whole bunch of shredded cheese. Um, and so you never would have known that if there were just verbally, uh, if they were just writing crackers and cheese, like the picture really does tell a lot. Like, how is the person eating? Is it full? How many crackers? Like you can really just see without actually having to make them count the crackers. Um, the shredded cheese is really an interesting choice because most people would either put some kind of soft cheese on a cracker or they would have some hard cheese and then pair them together. So it's just a really interesting choice and, and common with patients with ARFID that they would have what we call some non-cohesive plate mm -hmm. choices. Um, and that is something that we'll work on. Like, oh, you know, can you have... Um, some hard cheese there instead, and that's kind of an easy swap. And so sometimes reteaching cohesiveness in the eating disorder world is also something that comes uh, visually as you're kind of teaching someone to put things together again, or you'll see kind of like um, turkey slices and bulgur and raw carrots or something. And you're just like, huh? Like, what am I looking at here? Can we make a sandwich, <laughs> you know? Um, and so you're just trying to teach people again how to reclaim mm -hmm. eating uh, and in a cohesive style. Yeah, what do, you, what do you think are the three biggest mistakes like early RDs make or any RD maybe working with eating disorders for the first time? Well, I think uh, one thing is uh, eating disorders really do affect all body sizes ages, ethnicities, genders, and races. I have people that come to me that are struggling and medically fragile and unstable um, in all kinds of body types. And so sometimes there can be um, misconceptions, misperceptions. Um, there might be a stereotype of what a dietitian might think. And whatever that stereotype is, it's probably wrong because eating disorders affect everyone. Um, I think the second thing might be that um, weight loss and eating disorder recovery are not compatible. So if somebody is trying to restrict, lose weight, um, it's really impossible to fix an eating disorder at the same time. That restrictive diet mindset will cause an energy deficiency, and then that will likely trigger eating disorder symptoms, making it really difficult to fix and address. That could lead to binging, it could lead to purging. I mean, it just makes it very hard to undo. And so clients don't necessarily like that when I say that, um, but it is true, you cannot, like you can't do both at the same time. Um, the third would be that I have seen dietitians making assumptions about what a client needs or what their desires are for treatment by looking at them. So they may give someone in a larger body less food, like because there's some fat phobia there or because they assume that that person needs to or wants to lose weight. Um, I've seen clinicians or trainers um, assume that someone in a larger body is less capable, less skilled because they're in a larger body. Um, so I think there's also a lot of fat phobia and stigma that goes on. 
Yeah, no, it's a good point. Like that eating disorders affect everybody. And, you know, I, I think, I think we've come a long way, but I still feel like males and eating disorders, it still like feels a little taboo. And I don't know if you can speak to that. Like, I just kind of think about all the males that maybe not like are in hiding, but I just, I feel like it's more females like on Instagram coming out about their stories and like struggling with eating disorders, but you see some of those stories, but I don't know. Like, I just try to think of like, what if a male is really struggling with the eating disorder? Like where are they sharing it on social media? Like, I don't see that movement yet, but anything kind of around that, or just with your experience with, um, like pro baseball and just body image and male athletes? Yeah, so we know that the prevalence among, you know, in males with eating disorders is rising. I have a lot of males in my practice that are struggling. Um, the ideal, uh, ideal male body image um, has become increasingly large and muscular and lean. Um, which can manifest as a drive to gain weight, build muscle, diet, fast, skip meals, uh, I mean, all kinds of things. We know that um, there can be delays in recognizing there's an issue, both in terms of what the provider sees and what the patient sees. So they may be sent away from doctor's offices thinking that there's really no issue, um, unfortunately, and the patient themselves really may not realize that what they're doing is problematic. Um, when males actually go into the doctor's office um, and get into the right hands and uh, are seeking treatment, um, studies have shown uh, that 50% of them meet urgent criteria for medical inpatient hospitalization. That by the time they actually show up, they're in bad shape. And so um, that, that's really interesting. It's like, there's just such a delay in getting care. Um, binge eating disorder is really common. It's probably the most common. It is the most common eating disorder um, among males and females, but um, it's, it's the most common eating disorder. And it's um, eating disorders are four times more prevalent among gay and bisexual males compared to heterosexual males. And then interestingly, eating disorders uh, look and present differently, perhaps uh, in transgender males, in the sense that thinness may be more preferred um, because it may suppress hormones, suppresses menstruation, may alter um, how the body is looking, it may cause more breast atrophy, so on and so forth. Um, one other thing I, I guess I'll just add, just you asked also about sports, um, if, I, if I may. Um, I, I will just say that you know, body image is an issue, uh, I, I think, kind of across sports where there are weight specific goals. And that's almost every sport that I've been around. Um, almost all sports have kind of ideas of body fat composition and weights uh, for their athletes. Um, I've been around some pretty high profile weight requirements for athletes where the media has been involved, um, where there's been really high uh, weight uh, weight incentives and workout incentives in their contracts. Um, and this affects how these athletes are dealt with in terms of how the front office deals with them, the coaches, the trainers, um, and underneath all of the scrutiny and the media and the press um, is a person who is just trying to deal with perhaps their genetics, um, which may or may not be aligned with whatever goal is being set for them. So that could be really tricky. Um, I've also been around uh, people who are desperately trying to reach their weight goal, um, and there are sometimes significant consequences if they don't, and that could lead to dangerous weight control methods. Um, and so, 
Um, I think whenever there are, you know, is that kind of pressure, it doesn't necessarily mean there's a full-blown eating disorder, but there can be disordered eating and disordered attempts. And, um, and there's just, there, there's a lot of focus on, on weight yet, you know, interestingly, weight is really just one of, uh, uh, actually, speaking of the Victory Program, they like to say, uh, and Dr. Riley Nichols, who formerly was the director there, likes to say weight is really just one of 40 factors that affect sports performance. There's lots of things that affect sports performance, sleep, mental toughness, um, you know, endurance, flexibility, someone following recovery protocols, somebody eating well, are they hydrating? I mean, there's just so many things that can affect how somebody's doing besides just weight. Yeah, no, I love that. Best advice you've received in your career up until this point? You can't fix everyone. Um, so what I mean by that is uh, when I first started out and certainly as a dietitian, you really just want everyone to eat breakfast or take a snack or, you know, when I was younger, I would cheerlead really hard, uh, send people articles and check in. And, and gosh, that was all before like social media and like really before I was like super on my phone and whatever else. And I got burnt out. I mean, I learned that lesson hard in the early years of eating disorder work that I was doing. Um, so I've learned to kind of allow space for someone's journey and to kind of really step back and give them the information and kind of wait, uh, detach a little bit. I mean, I love my clients. I care enormously, but it really became almost like a spiritual practice to kind of have a healthy detachment, kind of set, set a boundary and then kind of really allow, allow them uh, to kind of have their space and time to you know, have their journey. Some do well, some do less well, some come back, some, you know, so on and so forth. Will you say that one more time? It was so good. What was the quote? <laughs> you can't fix everyone. <laughs> yeah. I just feel like you just made like everyone just feel so much better by saying, because I think you're right. Like we all just want to help people so bad. And it's probably like year like three or four, you realize like, actually Laura Moretti said this too, like you can't work, you can't work harder than your patient is working. And like, that's the same and that gives you so much space. And actually maybe you're helping the patient by like giving them the space because like, it's their life. Like it's their life and you, totally. you will be there every step of their, you know, but they have to want it for them too. And I think that's the hardest part of our work is like, we can't want it more than they do. Um, but I think when you do give them that space, I do think they come around, but don't get your hopes up that everyone comes around. <laughs> But I think totally. when you're younger, you think everyone, like, just, you can solve every problem for sure. All right. Ready for the rapid fire round? Sure. All right. FaceTime or phone call? Phone call. Okay. Biggest email pet peeve? Um, I think people not responding. They don't respond to you? I, yeah, I mean, like, I don't know, like if you're expecting a response and then they don't respond, like I'm a, I'm a responder, like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like I'm attentive. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. if somebody doesn't respond, I feel like it's rude. Yeah, it is rude. Good point. Rainbow sprinkles or chocolate sprinkles? Oh, rainbow. Yes. Definitely. Chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream? Yes. Chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream. Yes. Does black raspberry ice cream go with chocolate sprinkles? Is that a thing? And then no. Um, That's the only time intriguing. I have that, but I don't know. I mean, I would try it. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'd be open. Okay. But that's not what you're, you wouldn't think those would go together naturally. 
That's the only time I have chocolate sprinkles. That's why I'm bringing that up. <laughs> I mean, that's an interesting combo. I wouldn't guess that. Okay, got it. I just wanted to check in. Okay, go to Luna Bar flavor. Um, what are the choices? Are you, okay, you're not. Okay, new question. Go it, to- Is that- is that the one that comes in mint? Like the, is there like that red mint one? Is that where I've had that? Yes, yes I like that one. one. Yes, underrated. Okay. Everyone go try the peppermint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. If you weren't a dietitian, what career would you have chosen? Oh my God. So that's funny you ask. I used to go around saying I would go into child and adolescent psychiatry or being an orthodontist. Because um, really? I think, well, oh. I don't really mean it though. I mean, I just mean it because I think I, because I used to discuss this with our adolescent medicine group, because we used to say that orthodontist, everyone's happy to go and people are like seem happy and their offices are really full, but here's the problem with both of those options. So I've taken it back and now I don't really have a good answer. Orthodon is very, very competitive from what I've learned. It's really hard to get in. And I really don't like teeth. So I you think people like are that. happy to go to the orthodontist? I think people seem pretty happy when they're, they're getting their braces fixed. They're happy to have a good smile. And then smiles change your life forever. Like you're going to have a good smile forever. It's like a really cool life-changing thing. Okay. I and never had braces. So that's probably why I don't have a connection to that. Did you have braces? So I did have braces. Okay. No, but that um, makes more sense for me because yes, I get it. But the thing is like, I'm not that into teeth. So I just felt like it was like a good, happy job. I thought for at one point, um, but then it's probably not going to really work out. Okay. So I don't know. That wasn't really a great idea. Then child and adolescent psychiatry, I always thought was a good idea too, um, because it's similar. It's I like the medical school aspect. And then it's like talking to people and then, you know, but then I have a couple of child and adolescent psychiatry friends who feel the burden of having very sick kids and are very stressed and it doesn't seem so I kind of reneging on that one too so I am at a loss of second career options I don't know it looks like you picked the right one from the start (laughs) yeah I think think I'd be a teacher I think that being a teacher would be a real option because I love the idea of teaching kids um being like in a school a school setting is like such a cool place to be and I love the idea of summers off like I, a lot of RDs are teachers though. Like I know, like, I, I know, do. know this, but I don't think you like talk about it enough. Like we're really teachers, which is we like really teachers. cool without, we don't get the summers off. <laughs> yes. I, I feel like I, I just remember, um, I have a couple, you know, a lot of my cousins are teachers and they all would have the summers off. And my sister's a school psychologist. Um, and she gets the summers off, but she works for school. And I just remember like so many people would have the summers off and I'd be like, I am in the wrong field because I just work right through that summer <laughs> I just do not get those summers off um, oh it's awesome all right ready for our last question yes okay if you could tell your younger already self one thing what would you say I would say to network um I was so engaged with my work when I was younger and I also was so happy to have so many great uh, co-workers, doctors, therapists, psychiatrists, like I was just really stimulated at that point, but I was so isolated from an RD standpoint. And it really wasn't until I got older that I was able to kind of meet other dietitians. And I so valued the connection and the wisdom, support, ideas. Um, 
friendship uh, from my colleagues that I just would say, go find some dietitians and collaborate and meet, you know, meet other people. So that's what I would say. I love that. Now that the world's opening back up, you can go meet more people. For totally. Totally. Awesome. Well, Wendy, thank you so much for your time today. Your advice was amazing and really appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so fun. Yes. Have a great rest of your week. You too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on Sports Artie Snippets. I hope you found our conversation helpful today. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify. Share the podcast or tell another sports RD to be or sports dietitian about it. If you can rate and review the podcast, it really helps the show and is much appreciated. Remember to follow along on Instagram at Sports RD Snippets to see what Sports RD guest is featured each week. I'm super excited to bring on my upcoming guests, so stay tuned. I'm Liz Waluka, and thanks so much for listening.